Good morning, Serve. I, my name is Morgan Greer, and so glad you are streaming with us and worshiping wherever you are coming from. Uh, as we open the morning, as we've done some worship together, we always like to highlight what's going on in our community. And so just a couple things. One, if you are streaming, especially for the first time, welcome. We're so glad you're with us. I wish I could shake a hand or like do an elbow bump or all that good stuff. Uh, but for now, we are encouraging everyone, head over to our website, servecc.org, fill out our digital welcome card. We'd love to connect with you. We'd love to know you. Uh, we'd love to hear more of your story, help you take a step. Uh, whatever we can do to actually encourage you and actually invite you into deeper community. I know as we're all dispersed, uh, we want to say there are inroads to get to know people even amidst COVID-19. And so head over to the digital welcome card, fill that out, and we'd love to connect with you. Uh, this announcement is kind of a big one, and uh, it's probably for people who maybe have been in and with and around Serve for quite a while. So again, if you're new, hang tight. Uh, but we have some big transitions uh, that are on the horizon this month. So one we are a little bit saddened by, and one we are very ecstatic about. So we'll do the sad first. Uh, we have loved working with Jacob Petker, our worship leader, but as of August 15th, he will be transitioning away from Serve. Now, this is not a uh, bad issue around serve. He has been a phenomenal employee, somebody I love, somebody who's been great with our team, who is gifted and called and been doing great work with and around serve, all right? Uh, this transition is about him getting a great opportunity. He is actually going to get to go and work with the church that his girlfriend, maybe soon to be fiance, uh, and getting to work alongside her vocationally. And Carissa and I uh, really know the joy of getting to work uh, vocationally on staff together over the last few Few months. Uh, they've been in conversation with him when their full-time worship pastor uh, position opened up. And so he will be taking that and again, getting to work alongside Priscilla and the gang at Revolution, uh, McPherson Revolution Church. And so we are so thrilled for him. We are certainly bummed personally that we're missing out on, on Jacob's presence and, and the way he has grown us and encouraged us and shaped us and led us in worship as a spiritual family. We are so thankful for Jacob. So we are bummed personally. We are excited as he goes. And one of the things that we really believe, we really do believe we're sending him. And not in some just like metaphorical sense, uh, but our core mission and vision to uh, lay hands and commission over 500 intentional disciple makers through our disciple making huddle process. Jacob has been walking with me uh, over the last 18 months or so in our disciple making huddle. I just commissioned him earlier this month. And so we really do believe in a very real and tangible way that as he goes to McPherson, he is then going to be bringing them uh, some real training and real practice and how to intentionally multiply his life and to teach people how to make disciples who make disciples. And so Jacob will continue to even train with us in our brown to green disciple making trainings. You might see him show up on a Sunday morning in the upcoming years. We are certainly continued friends and we love him. So track him down in the next two weeks. He'll leave by August 16th uh, to begin his work there. And then on Sundays, since we're doing pre-recorded worship, he'll even help us get through the entire end of the month. So you'll see him streamed online doing worship through the end of this month. We're so thankful for Jacob. We're bummed he's going. We're blessed to be able to send him. A second transition that's really crucial and we are just ecstatic about is uh, my dear friend Josh Jackaway is coming back to Kansas City and he'll be joining our staff team full-time as our disciple-making pastor and youth catalyst. That's a mouthful. 
Josh uh, lived in Kansas City for over about 12 years. Uh, He was actually a previous boss for both Carissa and I when we were church planting residents at Restore Community Church. Uh, He has been in the last four years at Mission Church as their youth pastor, but they love Kansas City. They love intentional disciple making. Josh actually and Chris Moix huddled me five years ago. And so the DNA and the ethos of our disciple making uh, kind of vehicle uh, was birthed in large part because of him. And so I get the deep joy uh, to invite him onto our staff team. Over the last six months, we've been having a regular conversation. He has been through our interview process with our management team, with our staff, and we are just ecstatic. So he and his wife and their two kids, uh, they have a three-week-old as the youngest, and uh, they will be coming here September 1st. 12 of his hours will be given towards middle school. And so really reaching middle schoolers in a heightened and deepened sense. We are just so thrilled uh, for that portion of his time. And then the majority of his time is disciple making, is the huddle coaching and process, is some prayer and fasting initiative. He'll speak from the front. He'll do a handful of things. He'll help us in our missional engagement. There are so many ways in which we are just excited uh, to see God growing our staff in this season. A last note with his transition, though, is that we also believe uh, that there's a financial generosity staff that we want to call all people at serve to. Uh, We believe, uh, both our management team and I, so Brent Hoskins and Jason Morgan, myself, uh, in taking on a new person at the full-time capacity, uh, we put some cuts into place, and then we're also wanting to raise another $25,000 to make that higher secure. What's so exciting, that might sound like a large number, so just give me another moment for some logistics as we cast vision for this, is that one of our mother churches, Journey Bible Church, in hearing of this need and in hearing of the exciting, kind of taking on our second full-time person, which we've never had another full-time person at a 40-plus hour capacity, uh, Journey Bible said, yes, we're willing to give you a $10,000 matching gift to all outside givers. So other churches, other individuals, kind of uh, beyond serve uh, serve people, um, their gifts will be matched up to 10 grand. So God willing, uh, 20 grand is going to be coming from friends and family in California and uh, in and around the Kansas City area, other churches who are praying and supporting. We are just so thankful for the immense generosity of other people who believe believe that God is doing something special in and through serve. What that means for us in the immediate family is we do believe that God is also calling us to sacrificially give, to sacrificially dive in and invest more deeply into reaching new youth, into our intentional disciple-making strategy and vision. And so we believe God is wanting us uh, to give sacrificially an extra $5,000 above our normal tithes and offerings. And so as you hear that, I know it's for the first time, uh, but I really want you to begin praying and considering how God wants to work in and through you and in and through your generosity to raise that additional $5,000. Again, we know that God is doing some powerful work. If you want to send me an email, if you want more uh, details on this, I would love to give that to you. This week, we'll even also give you a a Zoom interview between me and Josh. Some of you know his face. Some of you have never met him. So we're going to fill you in, but we're asking that you would dig in with us. Carissa and I have given our gift uh, of sacrificial giving above what we regularly give, and we're asking for all of us as a church this month, the month of August, to dive in, to give sacrificially, and to support what God is doing in and through Josh, and we are so thrilled uh, to kind of flex our generosity muscles and to invest even more deeply. We're calling you into that. Um, So online, there's a specific tab that we would want you to give that gift through, Uh, and it says disciple-making pastor slash youth 
uh, catalyst, all right? So that's the place where if you're giving your gift towards this specific hire, um, that's where you'll do it, or you can send a check and write that in the memo line. We're excited, we're thrilled, and would you pray about these things with us and also as we prepare ourselves for the sermon? God, we open to you. And we are so thrilled uh, in what you're doing in Jacob's life, even as he goes. We're saddened and yet thrilled that you are a God who sends people to new kingdom initiatives. And so we bless him and we thank you for him. Uh, God, we are, are ecstatic about Josh coming onto staff and, and, and living his life in and among us uh, in, in the area of Prairie Village. And we're just so thrilled. And so, Lord, I'm praying that you would speak to us and prompt us and um, encourage us to give generously. Um, so that we can uh, just enjoy friendship with him and enjoy him being a part of our spiritual family and him uh, being one of the many of us who are investing in and beyond ourselves uh, to help people find and follow Jesus. And so, Lord, bless these efforts and open our hearts and our minds as we uh, hear from your word this morning. We pray that in your name. Amen. So one of the cherished uh, traditions of our country is the inaugural dress of the president. Uh, George Washington kicked off this tradition back in 1793, and it stuck. And uh, part of its lasting importance is that it really allows the public to hear some of the vision, some of the heartbeat of uh, the president giving hope for the country. Uh, many times, inaugural addresses can really also provide a roadmap of what's to expect. Now, Admittedly, inaugural addresses can often be, often be filled with platitudes or promises that no single person, much less that specific president, could actually keep. But many addresses have also had some landscaping uh, statements that do bring hope and courage in challenging times. Uh, FDR's uh, inaugural address back in 1933, this is one you maybe heard, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. It allayed the panic of a people gripped in the midst of depression. JFK's 1961 challenge, ask not what your country can do for you, ask for what you can do for your country, sent this idealistic message calling for change and sacrifice. Inaugural addresses can set the tone and tenor and ideally give hope to people who are hurting. This morning, as we continue in our biblical justice and race series, we will hear Jesus's inaugural address. And so if you would, turn to Luke chapter 4 with me. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, we can have words on the screen as well. I want to make sure you know where we're at. Maybe you're coming in for the first time. Over the past two weeks, we've been building this broad basis of biblical justice. The first three weeks has been devoted to building this broad biblical base of justice. And the back four weeks of our series is going to address race very directly and attach that as one of many, but one of a crucial uh, justice issues in our country. And we've been catching uh, the heart of God who says in Isaiah, a God who defines himself says, for I, the Lord, love justice. We are waiting under this reality that, that God is a God of justice, defined by it, and a God who unleashes justice onto the earth. We've, in the past two weeks, seen some crucial implications of justice, the image of God in Genesis 1 as the foundational truth, the great why for the basis of human rights, for equitable interactions between people, and, and, and the second greatest command to love our neighbor as ourself. Why? Because every person is created in the image of God. We've seen how the Ten Commandments, uh, as a crucial groundwork for Western democracies, thousands of years prior to them ever being constructed. 
We've taken in the narrative that the words for justice and righteousness, tzedakah and mishpat in the Old Testament, are are words that amplify and actually uh, often parallel each other, and that there are a thousand verses in the Bible throughout the scriptures that have some wording of either justice or righteousness, and oftentimes they're they're qualifying or, or nuancing or amplifying each other. We've seen the overwhelming uh, snapshots of justice in the Old Testament last week that include God's heart for things like procedural justice, for structural justice, for restorative and redistributive justice, and God's heart for the poor, the oppressed, the widow, and the orphan. Those four categories are mentioned over 2,300 times in the scripture. And on the backs of all that, this morning, We dive into the justice of Jesus, how Jesus steps into all these threads and all these pillars of justice that are just laced throughout the Old Testament. Jesus comes in and says he's going to fulfill things. He's going to fulfill this justice. So our big idea this morning, if you're needing something to attach to where we're headed this morning, is that proclaiming justice and unleashing justice upon this earth was central to the mission of the Messiah. And so we're going to draw that out, and we're going to see some implications of it this morning. So let us turn to Luke 4. We are going to first dive into the teachings of Jesus, right, in this inaugural address, inaugural sermon, if you will. Now, according to the gospel writer Luke, this is his inaugural sermon. Prior to this sermon, Jesus was publicly baptized by John the Baptist. A little background. The Spirit of God descends. God the Father speaks out of the heavens saying, this is my beloved Son whom I love. And, and so God already says that Jesus is everything I've ever wanted him to be prior to him doing any ministry. Then the Spirit of God leads Jesus out in the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, where he is tempted and tested by Satan who attempts to take Jesus away from his true and beloved identity. But Jesus does not fail. Out of that time of testing, we read these words, the inaugural address. Verse 14, Jesus returned to the Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he searched out. Notice, he found the place where it is written. Verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery for the sight of the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, there's so many things we could talk about. We will be brief here, but we will unpack a few highlights of the audacity of what Jesus is saying here. So Jesus steps into the synagogue into his hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth was a small town. Most biblical scholars believe it was around a thousand people in the days of Jesus. This is certainly a everyone knows everyone sort of town and sort of moment, right? Jesus grew up here. He's handed the scroll. And so he goes and finds the place in Isaiah of Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 2. And he begins saying this. This is what the scroll says. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, this language here, and all his hearers would have known this, this is referring to the Messiah. 
This is messianic language. This is kingly language. And this is anointing language. The people of his day would have caught this. So the Old Testament, the kings were always anointed with oil. It was this physical, tangible symbol of God's presence, of God's direction over that person's life. They also, though, were were given God's spirit. God poured out his spirit on those anointed kings uh, throughout the centuries. And so Jesus is explaining, and this wouldn't have baffled anyone, that the Messiah is actually in the line of the true kings of Israel. This is a very political statement of authority and rule. The Davidic line, King David, that line had been broken for hundreds of years. At Jesus's day, hundreds of years of foreign domination. Uh, Different groups had come in and taken over. At the time of Jesus's reading, it was Rome. Rome ruled over Israel. There was no Davidic king on the throne, but the Messiah would mend that broken line. So it'd come from the Davidic lineage. Now, in his reading, though, it's also saying, what type of king is this Messiah? What does his rule look like? And so Jesus unpacks here, Isaiah unpacks that he's just simply reading, that there is a good news. There is a gospel coming out of the mouth of the Messiah. The Greek word there, euangelion, involves a messenger and a message. There's a verbal proclamation of this good news. But this good news is distinctly, if you see here in these words, for the poor right? It's presumably for everyone, uh, but people's wealth or social social status could actually, presumably, get in the way of it being good news because the Messiah is going to turn things upside down. The reign and the rule of the Messiah is going to upturn the unjust patterns and ways of the world that naturally bend because of sinfulness, because of our, our, our bend towards injustice, to marginalize, to trivialize, to overlook the poor. When Messiah comes, good news will be distinctly towards the poor. Jesus continues that. He says, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery for sight of the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Look at all the justice language here that is going on. And fascinatingly, the second half of this reading Jesus kind of pulls a rabbi move that was common of his day. He actually adds a line. Uh, The line to set the oppressed free or to release the oppressed, found in other translations, it was not found in Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 2. It actually comes out of Isaiah 58. Again, his listeners would have heard this immediately, right? They would have heard him start quoting Isaiah 61. They know it by who many of them had most of the Old Testament memorized or large portions, especially famous passages like this one. But all of a sudden he quotes Isaiah 58 and just kind of one-liners it and then goes right back to Isaiah 61. Now, two weeks ago, we read Isaiah 58. We will not unpack it here, but it is a scathing indictment against God's people for their false religiosity. They would stop their work, they would worship, they would celebrate, they would read scripture. Yes, those are all parts of God's Sabbath, but they utterly failed to take care of the poor, to take care of the needy, to act justly. Instead, they were promoting and moving forward oppression. And Isaiah 58 is this scathing attack to say, you have blown my type of Sabbath. This setting the oppressed free, this releasing the oppressed is an important Greek word there. That word release or to set free is aphesis. Can we all say that? Aphesis. It means letting go or releasing. And we miss it in the original language, but aphesis is often the word that we're going to find in our English translated Bibles as forgiveness or to forgive. It's the same word 
aphesis. So in English, we say, I forgive you. In the Greek writing here, it's better said, I release you. I release you of the burden of your sins. There's forgiveness. There is a release of the debt. And so to announce aphesis, to announce liberation, to announce release or freedom means that both in this scripture very clearly that there are earthly, physical, tangible circumstances that should begin to change and there are spiritual connotations and forgiveness as well. Both are included. Scholar and theologian Tim Mackey of the Bible Project describes, in our minds, we tend to separate God forgives me of my sins from a change in my physical circumstances. And in this story, those are interwoven. Their circumstances is the result of their sins. So Jesus' one-liner is tying Jubilee and Sabbath together. Because he returns back word for word, quoting Isaiah 61 verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Again, if you were here with us last week, something might be catching your words in those statements, the year of the Lord's favor. This was a direct reference to Leviticus 25, which we unpacked in depth last week. Every 49 years or 50 years, depending on the commentator understanding, God had commanded his people into a radical way of living. Here are the highlights of the year of Jubilee. Every debt in all of Israel was supposed to be canceled. Imagine that. All indentured servants were freed. We unpacked the nuances of indentured servitude last week. The entire land was to experience a Sabbath, meaning no new planting, no new reaping, only what naturally grew from the last year, radical. And then on top of all that, there was a return of all people back to their land. This was a radical redistribution. This is a radical restorative work that stops generational cycles of poverty from continuing along. That's the whole purpose of the year of Jubilee. Well, here's a key thing I purposefully left out last week. As best as scholars and theologians know, Israel not once obeyed Leviticus 25. The year of Jubilee, not once, actually happened. Roughly 1,500 years from the time Moses received that to the moment when Jesus opens up this scroll and reads it, not once, not one 50-year moment of obedience had the people of God obeyed and experienced the Lord's favor. So now we actually get to the climax moment of Jesus' teaching here. Because right now, you know, at the moment, like, good, people are expecting a nice little sermon where Jesus tells you all about the Messiah, right? Here's what happens instead. Verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. In those days, rabbis and teachers would sit while others often stood above them looking down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your And this is certainly a massive claim. It is a mic drop moment. He's saying, oh, in little town of Nazareth with roughly a thousand people, oh, people of Israel, the very thing you've been waiting for for hundreds of years, king after king, decades of exile in your past, hundreds of years of silence from uh, the the last written book of the Old Testament, Malachi, roughly 400 years of silence uh, from God speaking to prophets to, again, when Jesus comes onto the scene. And Jesus says, I'm here. Like, I'm that guy. I am the, one, the real Messiah, and I'm initiating the year of Jubilee, which you have never 
experienced. And he uses, it's already been fulfilled. He uses a certain tense that is a past uh, past present sort of tense, meaning this verb afeontai, afeontai, is the past present. It's already been done. Jesus says, I've already fulfilled it. And yet this form of the verb tense means it's in the past and yet it has ongoing implications right now and continuing forward. The work has been done and yet you're going to start to see it. It's ongoing. Have you ever picked up a rock and thrown it into a still lake? What happens? Ripples, right? Ripples in the water that seem to go on forever and ever. That's the idea. Jubilee is here. I've already secured it. And now you're going to get to see it ripple onwards with implications. Now, Luke 4 is one of many moments where Jesus directly steps into the messianic claims from the book of Isaiah, where justice is central to that mission. That's what he's unpacking here. According to Glenn Stassen and English, 16 of 17 messianic passages in Isaiah include justice as a key characteristic of God's kingdom. 16 out of 17. And so we've just camped on his inaugural message because he includes it there to set a tone and a tenor and a theme for everything that Jesus would then go about and do. Now, like I said, it's one thing to have an inaugural sermon. It's another thing to live it out. So what I'd like to do, we've seen Jesus' teaching here. I want to examine four more T's that show how Jesus lives this out. Jesus lived this out through his touch, through his table, through his condemnation of the temple, and then through the own embodiment of his torture. And we're going to stay in the book of Luke here. So keep hanging with me. Following the inaugural sermon and nearly what happens with this crowd, well, they nearly kill him. <laughs> uh, so you can check that out uh, in the rest of that uh, at that synagogue moment because the offense of Jesus' claims were so great that they nearly killed him and he kind of escapes out of it. And so a few verses later, after that story concludes in verse 40 of chapter four in Luke, it says, at sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and laying his hands on each one his touch, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. On dozens of occasions throughout the gospels, this is in all of the gospels, not just Luke, that he would allow the crowds to approach him. He would lay hands on them and he would heal people of their diseases. And so Jesus left the synagogues often. He would teach there often. So I'm not saying he didn't. He did quite often. But he would also regularly leave them, leave those centralized holy places, if you will. He would go out into the margins. He would seek those out in the margins. And he would touch people. Something the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees in particular, dared not do. Why? <laughs> because they believed the uncleanness of those nasty, immoral, yucky people out there, whatever you want to say there, would hinder their personal holiness. And Jesus completely bucked that with his touch. Jesus' touch said, I bring freedom for the oppressed. In his healings, he was bringing literal sight to the blind. Yes, there was spiritual sight as well, but literal 
blind people could then see. Jesus performed those sorts of miracles uh, who were, yeah, moving in and through that. Jesus was bringing real freedom, tangible freedom in these moments. In, in this moment in Luke 4, when demons are cast out, people are released and freed from real spiritual and physical oppressions. When you read the Gospels, oftentimes demonic possession had physical connotations as well. In each of these touches, people began to experience both physical, social, emotional, and yes, of course, spiritual layers of healing as well unleashed into those individuals, unleashed into those communities. If the touch of Jesus in the crowds isn't enough, the story of one comes to mind as well in Luke 5. In a wild scenario, a few friends drop a paralyzed man right in front of Jesus in the midst of a crowded house where Jesus is teaching. And after the dust settles, he sees the faith of the friends and says to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Greek word used there for forgiven, you might have guessed it, aphesis. It's the Greek verb form, afeontai, right? And that's the word forgiveness or released. The burden of your sin has been released. They've been pushed away. And that verb is also in that same kind of past present tense where it's already been forgiven. But guess what? Now you get to experience the joy of the ongoing implications of you no longer carrying that burden anymore. And the religious elite of his day were outraged. They clamor that he is blaspheming, that only God can do such release of sins. And so Jesus addresses the elephant in the room. He says, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are afeontai, released, forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to what? Forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. This is not accidental. Like Luke, as the gospel writer, is using this word, aphesis, because he's saying, look, everything Jesus said, the first moment he publicly speak in his inaugural address, he then went and did. His touch healed physical, spiritual, social, and emotional realities. This man was now able to walk. He was now able to go to the synagogue and the temples. He was restored, ritually clean, no longer impure. He was released in these physical and spiritual realities. The freedom and justice that Jesus unleashes on the earth is far more holistic than many of us tend to make. We tend to be very comfortable with the spiritual healings of Jesus, and yet we have a hard time grappling often with the justice and with the physical and social and emotional ramifications. If Jesus' teaching and his touch weren't enough, we've got to see his table as an aspect of fulfilling the year of the Lord's favor. In chapter 5, the very next story, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his booth. Follow me, Jesus said. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Most of us miss the audacity, maybe because of the simplicity of the story. 
But the fact that Jesus invited a man named Levi, or, or also known as Matthew, who actually wrote one of the four Gospels found in the Bible, the Gospel of Matthew, was a well-known and well-hated tax collector. And, and this was an offense to the social, political, religious powers of the day. They would have felt slighted that someone, a rabbi like Jesus, would do something like that. And, and so Matthew, the same one who wrote the gospel, was most certainly hated by fellow Jews. Tax collectors were seen as traitors because they were employed by Rome, the, the oppressive rulers, and they made their salary collecting taxes for this unjust power uh, to their fellow Jews. Matthew was not very well liked. And yet, the first thing he did was to give up everything, a lucrative career, and to follow Jesus. And then he threw a party. But guess who his party mates are? Well, they're other fellow tax collectors, right? They're other sinners and detestables uh, with, you know, the way social structures were. They were the unhated, they were hated. And yet they're the ones who uncork the wine, cook the steak, break bread together, and are celebrating so loudly at this home uh, that there's a little bit of a commotion in the town. And you kind of get this feeling that these kind of creeper Pharisee teachers are like, hey, what's that thing? And kind of walk down the street together, catch word, see what's going on, are flabbergasted that this rabbi Jesus would be with and around that sort of party. And then they see like Peter and James and John, some of Jesus' uh, disciples who had just been called prior to Matthew. And they kind of corner them and say, how are you guys hanging out with the tax collector? And it's just like, you can't do this. This is terrible. And yet I love how Jesus interrupts the moment. They didn't ask him, but Jesus overhears or does something and says, look, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. Jesus' table was one of the top three or four reasons why he was killed. Uh, because the table of the day was a sign of acceptance to either receive an invitation into someone's home or to open up your home. Whatever that, uh, whichever way that was going, you are aligning yourself with those, with those people. You are accepting friendship. In a culture steeped in appearances of honor and shame, the table was one of people's greatest currencies. And in the Gospel of Luke, there are numerous meals that Jesus attends, and most of them involve a group of people that the religious elites would have looked down upon. And in doing so, they were unjustly pushing those people away from God. And they were pushing people away from a deeper connection with God. Jesus did the exact opposite. He befriended tax collectors and sinners. And he made it very clear that his holiness, that his goodness, and that his joyful justice actually reversed the trend. He wasn't made unholy by being around them. His holiness was able to win out and bring healing and wholeness. As Jesus spent time with those that the religious elite said were too impure, too morally evil, too broken, too corrupt, and too far from God. And Jesus said, you know what? You're only partially right. They are broken in certain ways. They have baggage and sin. They've been wronged and they've wronged others. They are sick, but I'm the great physician. And with me, they can experience healing. And guess what? He was also teaching them. He was implicitly saying, and other times explicitly said, you're broken too. You're actually sick. And the only difference between you and them is that they know they have some issues and you religious elites are blind to yours. You can't see your need for aphesis. And so we've seen the teachings, the touch, and the table of Jesus. And we want to hear the temple as well. Because as far as the human narratives go, the temple is the greatest reason why Jesus was killed by the powers of his day. 
In the final week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, he enters on a Sunday uh, the temple courts on a donkey. And this was a cryptic yet well-known messianic uh, claim from the prophet Isaiah that the Messiah would come riding in on a donkey. And the crowds were enamored. They picked up on this. They lay branches. They, they lay their cloaks down. They sing songs. They chanted Hosanna in the highest. They were welcoming what they believed was an earthly king who would immediately or very soon after overthrow Rome and reinstitute the power of Israel, right? Like, yes, finally, we're going to be out of oppression. Come and save us, Messiah. So they're singing these things, throwing this massive celebration. Now, after all the ruckus, Jesus actually leaves the temple and then he's going to come back into it again with his disciples. And so this is actually his second time returning in Luke 19, verse 41. He's just with his disciples and it says this, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And I've been on the Mount of Olives. It's amazing. It's this hill that you can, as you come down the Mount of Olives, you come down the valley and then back up into Jerusalem. So on the way down, you can literally see the entire city of Jerusalem. And I imagine Jesus saying this, weeping over them. Jesus was not fooled or enamored with the praise of fleeting crowds, who we knew only days later would clamor for his death. Instead, he saw through all of that, And so here we have a private prophetic moment that really only his disciples are seeing, but that he would then move very publicly and to proclaim uh, the the destruction of the temple. temple. And Jesus' words right here came true only a few decades later. In 66 AD, the great revolt of the Jews began, and that all ended in AD 70 when the Romans encircled and crushed the temple down uh, down to its mount. And that's known as, uh, there's the western wall of the Temple Mount is known as the Wailing Wall. It's where Jews from around the world and other peoples as well, I was was there again years ago, where they will come to mourn and to weep and to wail and to write prayers and to even stick it into that Temple Mount, hoping that the temple will be reestablished. Jesus mourned this moment because they couldn't see that the Messiah was at hand. And as he goes into the public moment, verse 45, it says this, When Jesus entered the temple courts, this is why he comes back a second time. He began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said, in my house, meaning the temple, will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find a way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Jesus didn't just have the private prophetic moment. He then goes into the public prophetic moment where he speaks truth to power. And he went to the top place, the top Jewish officials, and he said, you're the problem. You've destroyed what the temple was supposed to be for. You've co-opted it. God's house was designed to be a place of true communion, of inclusion, of of being able to go to God in prayer. And instead, you've pushed people out. You've pushed them away. You've turned this place into a den of robbers instead of a house of prayer. And other times, Jesus made it even that much more clear. He explicitly said, I'm the new temple. He said that there's a new temple on the scene and that was him and that it was his body, that Jesus was the new locus of God's forgiveness rather than 
the temple. He was actually replacing the temple. And the elites said, it's time for you to die. And it did not take long for these chief priests and teachers of the laws and others to turn the crowds. It actually just took a couple of days. Most likely this moment was either Sunday or Monday that week. And by Friday, Jesus is looking at the culmination of his life, the torture of Jesus. And so after false trials and false witnesses and mockings and beatings, we flip ahead to Luke chapter 23, verse 32. It says, two other men, both criminals, were led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the school, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divide up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and they said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly today I will be, you will be with me in paradise. It was about noon now and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. One of the clear themes of the cross is this merging of forgiveness of sins and the justice of the Messiah colliding. Jesus openly proclaim good news. And even in his dying moments, he proclaims the news, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Like Jesus is forgiving his oppressor enemies. The forgiveness of Jesus, the justice of Jesus, the release of Jesus is good news because it has the power to heal both the oppressor and the oppressed. But it can only be uttered by someone who was fully just. We all have limited perspectives. We all have wrong and broken understandings of justice. There's no one who can claim they have it right but for Jesus. And there's no one who can have the authority to forgive both the oppressor and the oppressed unless they have that sort of full knowledge and, and, and actual just practice. Only Jesus had that. And he forgives his oppressors right amidst their oppression, not sometime afterwards, but right as they are crucifying him. And we see in the dialogue between these two criminals and Jesus that one of the criminals understood that he had committed a crime that was worthy of some form of a death penalty, which happened to be crucifixion. He probably committed murder, right? Something along those lines. But the one who hung beside him, Jesus, was fully just. He had no crime hanging over his head. He was suffering unjustly. In the upside down good news of the Messiah's kingdom, Jesus's kingdom, Jesus forgave that man too. And Christians have historically believed that Jesus atoned 
that he took the place for, that he prayed the price for all sins, all injustices, past, present, and future. That upon the cross, the sins and the injustice of the world's world was heaped upon Jesus. And in return, those who put their trust in Jesus as Lord, meaning king over all the universe, and also put their trust in him as Savior or Messiah, the one who rescues, whoever hopes in Jesus as Lord and Savior receives Jesus's holiness, not their own injustices. Jesus's sinlessness rather than their own sins. Jesus's forgiveness and release of the burden of their sins rather than the just punishment for sin. As Paul later writes in Colossians 2, the cross is upside down. It's this message of the just one suffering unjustly so that the injustices of the world can be turned upside down through his justice. Paul says it this way in Colossians 2. I read this two weeks ago. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. That's justice language, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authority, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's the irony of what Jesus did through his teaching, his touch, his table, the temple, and his torture. Is that in his torture, he takes all those threads, funnels them down, brings it upon himself, and turns it upside down and offers his life for you and for the cosmic sins of a broken world. And so I want to ask you, as we think of how we respond to all of this, have you yet surrendered your life to Jesus? Like I am enamored with the person of Jesus. And one of those threads is believing that he is truly the unjust, the just one who suffered unjustly, who can bring me his justice rather than my own. I'm not asking, do you go to church? I'm not asking, are you religious? I'm not asking, do you think you're a religious person? I'm asking if you've chosen to bank your whole life, both the here and now and the forevermore, on the person of Jesus, on his ability to rescue us, to release us of our sins. I want to encourage you, if you have not surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, would you consider doing so now? Would you consider dropping everything just like Matthew did? and following after Jesus as Lord and Savior. He asks for nothing short of everything. And yet in doing so, Jesus gives us his everything. He aligns us with the just Messiah, the rescuer and redeemer of the whole cosmos. And you are are named if you put your faith in Jesus as a new creation, alive with Christ both now and forevermore. And I want to encourage you, confess your sins, repent, meaning walk in a new direction, and believe the good news that Jesus has given himself to you for the forgiveness of your sins. A second step for us to consider, especially those maybe who have been following Jesus for their lives for a while, how often do you over-spiritualize the gospel? And that sounds like a strange thing, but I think many of us are comfortable with the spiritual ramifications of Jesus making us right with God, but we regularly overlook the physical, social, and emotional uh, realities that Jesus brings to bear in his miracles, in his touch, in his table, in his in the temple condemnation, in these things, don't overlook that whole how holistic, how multidimensional 
is your understanding of the good news because Jesus came on the scene and said, I'm here to pronounce good news to the poor, to give sight to the blind, to release captives, to set the oppressed free that has tangible ramifications both here and now. And yes, of course, spiritual realities. My assumption as I speak to you is many of us are overlooking uh, those other realities. So I want to ask you, how often are you doing that? And I want to encourage you, take a step this week. Maybe open the gospel of Matthew or Mark, read two or three chapters, read a miracle story, read something in the life of Jesus, and try to tease out how his, uh, one of those T's, find it, and say, man, how did this change that person or those commu- that community or those people who are directly affected in that moment? Tease those out and camp out on the other ramifications to get a more holistic picture. So immerse yourself in some way this week. Choose one chapter of one of the four gospels. You can choose. Get yourself in the life of Jesus and unpack what uh, you see there. And finally, a last takeaway. As we engage the next four Sundays, really directly talking about race, something I know is hard uh, for our culture that is hard for people in general. Um, I know it's, it's gonna be a challenging conversation. I'm really thrilled and excited to engage it with you. But would you, in preparation for that, take a 20 to 30 minute prayer journal reflection time, set it aside sometime this week, and I want you as best you can, what are some of your biases? What are some of your preconceived notions as you hear and have known, if you've been tracking with us, you know we're about to engage in these race discussions. What are some of your your stuff that comes up in you? What are some of the biases you might have in and around the conversation around race? I think it's really crucial that we try to uh, increase our self-awareness as we step into this conversation. None of us enter into it without biases, preconceived notions, prior political affiliations, so many things, different leanings, What are your biases? Get them on a paper. Like actually name them with me and it's gonna help us as we move forward. Would you pray with me, sir? Lord, we love you. We bless you. We're blown away by your son, Jesus. And I pray even right now that if anyone has not yet stepped into relationship with Jesus, that they would say, yep, I wanna follow you. Like, I, I confess I need you. I confess I've, I've been, an, been an oppressor. I have hurt others. I have wronged them with my words, with my thoughts, with my actions. I have done stuff to break that gap. And Jesus, you are the sinless just one. And you came to rescue me. And so I pray, God, that we would step into relationship with you. We would follow you as Lord and Savior, that you give boldness and courage to anyone who's streaming in, who's yet to do that, that they would say that. They would name it. And they would share that with somebody else that I want to start following Jesus with my life. God, form us, shape us, and give us your heart of justice. We pray this in your wonderful name. Thank you for joining us for worship at Serve Community Church. If you're interested in more information on how to connect with our community, feel led to support us in any way you can or have any further questions, please check us out on social medias like Instagram or Facebook or go to our website at servecc.org. God bless and have a great day.